0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month that's better help h-e-l-p dot com slash sacred text chapter four the keeper of the keys boom they knocked again Dudley jerked awake where's the cannon he said stupidly there was a crash behind them, and Uncle Vernon came skidding into the room.
2: He was holding a rifle.
1: I'm Vanessa's old hand.
2: And I'm Matt Potts.
1: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So, Matt, it is now time for us to tell a story on the theme of celebration. And by us, I mean you. What story do you have for us today?
2: So, a couple of months ago, my family had a really big celebration. Because my parents celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. And this was a date that we'd been looking forward to for many, many years, of course. But, you know, as with so many celebrations during COVID, it did not take the form that we had kind of anticipated all those years when we'd been looking forward to it. My brothers and I just had to kind of figure out what we're going to do. How are we going to mark this? This really big milestone in the story of our family and in in my parents' lives and, and in our lives. And so what we did is, you know, instead of having the party that we always thought we would have, we reached out through social media to all kinds of folks, friends and family of theirs to send in videos and messages. And you, we gathered on Zoom as a family and watched this video that my brothers and I compiled. It was really special. It was really, really meaningful. And it was different than a party would have been. And there's a part of me that still wishes that we had been able to gather, of course, gather in person and celebrate this milestone event in our family But the really, really interesting and exciting thing about it was that by using this different means of gathering, there were so many people who were able to get involved who wouldn't have been. All my mom's family is in Japan, and all those people just rallied and sent like the most beautifully overproduced videos. And folks who never would have been able to make it to, or probably wouldn't have driven the eight or nine hours to get to a physical gathering, were able to send these really touching wishes. And now my mom and dad have this like artifact, this video of all these friends, like wishing them well from all their years of marriage together. And so it just got me thinking about how the way we choose to mark occasions already has its boundaries, already has its borders, already determines who gets to be part of that celebration. Even if there's something lost in changing the way we celebrate, in this particular instance, in my particular family, there really was something gained because a bunch of people were able to participate and mark this really important day who wouldn't have been able to do that had it been the normal run of things.
1: I'm very inspired by that story personally, because it's my parents' 50th wedding anniversary in three months. And I'm like, oh, I should have all of our family that is in Israel and Mexico and France send it video. So thank you for that really good idea, even though I really, really hope that that boundary of not being able to gather in person is gone by August, but... I definitely think we see that in this chapter. It is Harry's birthday, and it's sort of a wizarding coming-of-age birthday, and yet the boundary that is put on it is that the Dursleys don't care about him and, like, don't care to celebrate. Even if there aren't boundaries like COVID boundaries or nine hours of driving, there can even just be family dynamic boundaries that limit the way that you celebrate,
2: Yeah, I mean, this is a huge milestone birthday for Harry as a wizard. And later on, he might compare with friends what their 11th birthday parties looked like. And his will look different, but his is always going to be pretty special, I bet.
1: Absolutely.
2: Getting this news this day from this person who becomes a beloved friend, I'm sure it sits comfortably and fondly in his memory.
1: So, Matt, what time did you wake up this morning? Last time you said you woke up at like 5. I'm hoping it's like now 5.30.
2: I got to say, I'm feeling loose today. I had a very busy day today, and I had a lot of other things on my mind, and I have not thought about the 30-second recap until just now. I'm not saying this doesn't go well. I'm saying I've done it poorly enough times that I know I can get over it going badly.
1: Isn't a low bar just like an amazing, freeing thing? You're like, oh, I'm going to suck at this. Let's go.
2: I'm counting you down, right?
1: Yeah. Count me down, and I'm going to recap first.
2: Okay, Vanessa. Three, two, one, go.
1: So it's Hagrid, and Vernon's like, I'm going to shoot you. And Hagrid's like, no, you're not. I'm strong. And then he goes, Harry, you're a wizard. Happy birthday. I sat on your cake. And Harry's like, who are you? And he's like, I'm a wizard like you. and Let me teach you. And your parents were great. And this is how they died. And wait, Vernon and Petunia, no one's ever told you? And Vernon's like, I'm not going to pay for him to get an education. And Hagrid doesn't really acknowledge how Hogwarts gets paid for. But he sits Harry down and he tells him his little history and that he's been a wizard this whole time.
2: Oh, we don't have to do the 30 second recaps in order. We can just list stuff that happened in the chapter. Yes. Okay, we're delaying the end of my 30 seconds, which I really want to get to. So why don't we just.
1: (laughs) Okay. on your mark, get set, go.
2: So the door blows off its hinges and it's Hagrid and Hagrid and and uh, Vernon takes the, has a rifle. Holy crap. And then Hagrid takes the rifle and turns it into a knot and says, you're a wizard. Here's a cake that I have sat on and also some tea and sausages from inside my coat, which doesn't seem sanitary. And then he says, uh, he says, your parents were, were wonderful. They didn't die in a dark car crash. And also Voldemort is disappeared, but he's maybe going to come back and, uh, and Dumbledore, don't insult Dumbledore. And then I'm going to turn Dudley into a pig. And that's the end of the chapter.
1: That was really good.
2: I got to the pig. I felt like the pig is, the pig's important.
1: The pig is important. Thank you for picking up on the pig. So Matt, the biggest moment of celebration to me is just in these opening sentences, of boom and then there's a crash and Hagrid comes in and I almost imagine it like this is a stage play and we've been holding on to this tension of like things for Harry getting just like worse and worse and worse they've gotten so bad that it is his birthday and he is hungry and cold in the middle of an island without getting access to like the one thing in the world he wants which is these letters and then this door gets knocked down and you almost can like hear the crowd go like yeah It's like Hagrid's here. The magical world has arrived. Harry is going to be safe. Like that's cause for celebration, right? To some extent, this chapter is very problematic. But to some extent, like what a big celebration. What an amazing gift of this kid finding out this essential part of his identity.
2: I mean, there is something about this pressure building, and the only kind of release valve that works in terms of plot has to be a big entrance. Like, you imagine if, you know, Professor Flitwick shows up and walks in the door, is just as capable of disarming Vernon through his own means. It's a different feeling than a half-giant walking through the door and tying a rifle into a knot. You know, we learn so much about the characterization of Hagrid because he has all these items in his big coat, and the cake was half-sat upon Even the sort of anti-climax of the actual birthday celebration, which is a half-smashed cake and some dodgy sausages and some tea, but that is so much more than Harry's ever gotten. That it's the perfect cake, even though it's half sat on, and the sausages couldn't be more delicious, even though they came out of a giant's coat. There is something about like all that pressure releasing through this huge figure of Hagrid, and then a still kind of sad birthday party, still being like the best birthday party Harry could imagine, given everything else he's every other birthday celebration he's had his whole life.
1: There is something that's true about if somebody sends me a bakery-made cake, like it's so thoughtful and lovely, and if somebody delivers me a homemade cake, even if it's like half as good, it's lovelier. And I don't know what that is within us that's like, I need your blood, sweat, and tears in order for this to be meaningful. But there is something like even sweeter about the fact that there's, like, this misspelling on the cake and that Hagrid couldn't help but smush it. I think it makes it even better, and I don't know what that is about humanity that, like, loves perfection and also finds it very endearing when things aren't perfect.
2: Well, there's something human about it. This came from a person, not from a, a machine. As I was trying to think about celebration and how celebration informed this, this chapter, I was looking at the etymology of the word celebration, and I you know, I tend to think about celebration as, like, a big party. The bigger the party, the bigger celebration. But evidently, the roots of the word celebration just have to do with, like, going through the ritual in a public fashion, like making public this thing, attending to it in the right way. And that's the other thing about the cake. Like, even if it's not a perfect cake, even if it's half sat upon, even if there's a misspelling on it, Harry's birthday has been barely acknowledged by the family for 10 years. And it's something about just the fact that it's happening, the fact that someone is saying, you have reached this milestone and we are going to perform the correct observances just the fact that it's being done is the celebration, even if it's just him and Hagrid in a shack overlooking the sea.
1: I'm struck by that definition of celebration in the way that the new envelope to Harry with his Hogwarts letter is now being addressed. Because it is very clear now that the address has nothing to do with helping the letter get to where it is. It's like an acknowledgement of this is a letter that needs to be delivered. If we're thinking about celebration as this important marker of transitions, of great moments, then to a certain extent, like formality is a a gift. Going through the motions of certain rituals and formality is a a lovely thing.
2: Along those lines also, there's also something about like, we are coming to you, like where you are. It's not so the postal service runs effectively. It's because what is being observed demands that we go to wherever you are. And if you are in the cover of the stairs, that's where we go because that's where the celebration is. And if you're in a shack overlooking the sea, that's where we'll go because that's where the celebration is. You know, the other thing about this idea of, of it being ritual is that, again, in the etymology, it looks like this word has to do with something about these observances being routine, being regular. It does mark a transition, but it's also something that we do routinely. The relentlessness of those letters and Hagrid's arrival in this chapter, I think, does speak something to this idea of this is the proper way to do things, and we are going to do it until we get it right, right? Because we, because this is what the occasion merits.
1: Matt, what do you make of the fact that, to this previous point you're making, that the day that you have to respond yes or no to Hogwarts falls on Harry's birthday? I feel like there's something symbolic going on there. Like, if Harry's birthday was in December, Hagrid would have shown up on July 31st anyway, because they like needed the Hogwarts response. But there's something about a rebirth happening when he has to be in conversation with Hogwarts by that I find to be really interesting.
2: That is really interesting. It makes the choice more dramatic. Well, it's not even a choice though, right? Because for Harry, I feel like it's in him. Even if he doesn't want to believe it's true, there's a part of them that immediately knows it's true and knows what his choice is. A lot of what's going on in this chapter is about power. The Dursleys saying no, and Hagrid slash Harry saying yes. And that kind of tension between the Dursleys and Hagrid maybe doesn't work unless there's an urgency of, you know, we need to know by tomorrow. The Dursleys have to be silenced by Hagrid now. There's not going to be a long argument over whether or not he's allowed to go. As, you know, later on in this series, when they're moving out of four-privet drive, right, there is a months-long argument about whether we do it or whether we don't, whether we do it or whether we don't. Like, this deadline makes it urgent enough that it provides a different frame for Haggard's violent response to the Dursley's refusal to allow Harry to leave. You know, I think that Haggard acts kind of badly. And as readers, we're more willing to forgive him because there is not time to dilly dally. A decision needs to be made. Harry deserves to be at Hogwarts. And so we don't have any patience with Vernon or Dudley or Petunia either. Right. The urgency gives a permission structure to the reader to be more forgiving of Haggard than maybe we ought to be. And this is the thing that really got me reading at this time. I remember Dudley growing this pig's tail, but that the the narrative tells us that he squealed in a way that proved that it was exceptionally painful. And I feel like this is still an 11-year-old child, even if he is a bully. Hagrid's a giant and who causes intense pain to an 11-year-old. Maybe a very unlikable 11-year-old, but who cares? That's just a, a bothersome thing. But just because it's within a certain set of genre conventions doesn't mean that we need to feel great about it or we can't talk about what else is going on in the chapter to give the reader a permission structure to see that behavior as humorous or even correct rather than as harmful.
1: And Hagrid is also just viciously mean to Dudley. Dudley is hungry and he's like, you don't need any more fattening up that comment about, oh, you probably didn't turn into a pig because you're so much like one already. And it's like, no, Hagrid, you're not good at magic. And you have to hide your wand in in an umbrella. Let's not literally victim blame (laughs) Dudley for why the spell didn't work. There are all sorts of actual reasons the spell didn't work. And it's just cruel. What's being celebrated here is wish fulfillment. This is exactly what we all want to happen when we are feeling bullied and undervalued. I remember when I had a really bad job just, like, fantasizing over and over again about the rage quit. Just, like, screaming at my boss and, like, having people applaud. Yeah, we all feel that way. Thanks, Vanessa, for doing it for all of us. Me being like, no problem. And that's, like, sort of what Hagrid is doing. Hagrid comes in and gives, like, this comeuppance for Dudley that we, as, like, nerds who over-identify with Harry, only, like, wish someone had come in and done I mean, it just perpetuates celebrating the exact same things that the Dursleys do that we judge. There are so many other spells that Hagrid could have done that I do think would have still been funny. He could have just like put a silencio spell on them. So like all of them would like be trying to talk and Harry just like couldn't hear anything negative. And he could have, like, calmly told Harry certain things. That would have been really annoying to the Dursleys to, like, be there and wanting to scream and not being able to talk. And, like, no one would have been hurt or insulted. It's just this feeling of, like, when we celebrate victory, how we often become the thing that we were trying to overcome. And it just, like, makes me sad.
2: I had a similar kind of thought about this episode. I wanted to ask you about schadenfreude. This is joy at others' suffering, joy at others' misery. You put it in the language of wish fulfillment. I think, you know, Schadenfreude is another way to describe that. I mean, do you think that is celebration? Is that what celebration is? Or should we excise emotions like Schadenfreude or joy at others' misery from from the things we want to celebrate or from our understanding of what celebration is?
1: In Judaism, we, you know, we tell the Purim story every year, which is a story about an attempt of, you know, the obliteration of the Jews. And every time the bad guy who wants to murder all the Jews, his name gets said, Haman, you're supposed to stomp your feet and you're given a noisemaker called a grogger and you're supposed to yell, boo. And it's so fun. Partially, it's a game with like the actors or the rabbi, whoever's telling the story. They'll be like, and then Haman, and everybody goes, boo! And there's something about that that I find really helpful because what you're booing is him being bad along the way. You're not screaming, yay, when he gets hanged at the end.
2: You know, I often, especially when I feel like people who do harm in the world when bad things happen to them or I wish bad things upon them. I've gotten into arguments with people who are like, you know, that's how can you wish ill of other people? And my response is always, I am not a wizard. My wishes do not affect bad things on other people, right? If I had that actual power, like I would not exercise that power. Like I get to distinguish my wishes from the results of my wishes on the world. But Hagrid is a wizard and wizards can make real their wishes in the world. And so it makes things like Schadenfreude just more complicated moral things to think about because they don't have the out that I do, which is like, you know, what I wish for in the world isn't something that I can actually affect with my limited powers. But but you know, the other thing it has me thinking about is I think there's a comparison also with Petunia because Petunia seems almost in describing what happened to her sister and to Harry's parents, I feel like I can sense almost a gleefulness in the kind of comeuppance that her sister gets by cavorting with all these wizard folk right and you can see how poisonous even a sense of joy or glee in that situation <laughs> can be right and so celebration doesn't need to buy i mean it can be and should be in many cases about about joy and happiness but sometimes it's just about making the correct observances to mark the things that deserve being marked and p- the pain and suffering of others isn't something that ever should be marked in that way i think
1: that. But- other thing I'll say about petunias and, and Vernon like really jumps onto this train of thought of like your parents deserved it. That to me is also, it is a human instinct that I want us to pay really close attention to it. When we hear about something bad, and I, I do this too, when we hear about some bad news about someone, let's say our neighbor, who we don't have like good or bad feelings about, we do not take pleasure in their pain. We find out that they have cancer. The first thing that I find that people want to do is ask questions like, did they smoke? Oh, but they ate a lot of meat. She used Splenda. She drank a lot of Diet Coke. Whatever it is, I find that people want to blame others for their own misfortune. And we do that from cancer to poverty, especially, and I think that this is an American problem specifically or more acutely than it is in other cultures. Meritocracy isn't just that, like, you deserve all the good things, but it's also this, like, you deserve all the bad things, even things that you couldn't possibly have any control over. Vernon and Petunia are doing that in this moment. And the reason that we do that is in order to do the next bit, which is, and therefore we're safe. Nothing will ever happen to us. I won't get cancer because I don't smoke. And I just, like, I I really want us to evolve past that instinct.
2: Yeah, you're right. I think it perpetuates the illusion that we have control over our lives. And this is what Vernon and Petunia want desperately, is to control the world around them. But this idea of merit or earning the good things that come your way is, again, it's tying it back to the question of celebration. Harry turns 11 just because he turns 11. He's a wizard just because he's a wizard. There's something important about what's being celebrated or recognized or publicly acknowledged here is not something Harry chose for himself. It is just who he is. Even that recognition, just the fact that this boy has turned 11, gives a lie to the meritocracy that Vernon and Petunia so desperately want to believe governs the way of the world.
0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Redfin, it's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. So Matt, I'm wondering what you think about Voldemort and the fact that like you can't say his name being introduced on this day of celebration. Is this part of like the rites and rituals? Like you're being introduced into this community and so you're also taught the rules like, there are shames. There are things that you can't say.
2: I mean, that actually has me thinking about, in my religious tradition, our central ritual is is the celebration of Eucharist. It's the Lord's Supper, bread and wine, you know, that kind of thing. And we call the performance of that ritual a celebration. The person who leads the ritual, the priest, is called a celebrant, even though anybody who's been to church knows it's not always super joyful, right? It is just <laughs> like the outward ritual of what we're supposed to do. But what's really interesting about that ritual is It also has this kind of two-pronged movement of remembering who we were and imagining who we hope we will become. And there also is, on its face, just this act of transformation that happens during the ritual, right? And I'm thinking about the other thing about, you know, not naming Voldemort's name and this hint that he might come back and also in order to describe why we can't say his name we have to talk about what happened like what's happening with Harry's the celebration of Harry's birthday on his 11th birth- birthday is a member of the community is coming to him and saying here is our history we have to remember it here is the future you are facing and here's what opportunities and what fears lies in wait for us and in order to shift from that past to this future you need to be transformed so here we go and in that sense this was this chapter In this very kind of only happens on Harry Potter in the sacred text kind of way, like refracted the central ritual of my community, Eucharistic celebration. It put it in a new light for me and helped me understand it in a new way.
1: I love that, Matt. It just reminds me, Ariana and I just co led a Seder, and it was the kids' first Seder. It's the dinner of Passover and it's a story. Like all you do is tell a story. And then there's like ritual parts of the meal attached with each moment of the story. And I think because the girls didn't grow up with Seder, it was especially special, right? Like the girls are starting to say things very sweetly like, well, I'm a little bit kind of Jewish. I'm like, yes, totally, And so watching them learn these stories in order to figure out the kind of person that they want to be, right? And that it's this holiday where, like, all you do is tell a story about something that happened 3,000 years ago. And then, like, one of the things you say, right, is, like, next year in freedom with this, like, eye toward looking forward. It's just my favorite celebration, this, like, telling stories and looking forward type of celebration.
2: I mean, the Eucharist is, as you know, is based on a Seder meal, so— It's not a surprise that this same dynamic between remembering our past so we can look to the future, it's not a surprise that it's mimicked in the Christian celebration. Both the Seder and the Eucharist just lead me to think about how within this chapter, food is so much a part of how Hagrid wants to mark this occasion for Harry, right? Even if it's a cake that's been partly sat upon, and even if it's Sausages from the inside of his coat, like food, is part of the celebration. Food is part of marking it for Harry, and and as a person who has often delivered delicious cakes to my family, Vanessa, I wanted to know what you what you made of that, what you made of the sharing of food in this chapter.
1: Yeah, I love this idea of breaking bread, of bringing food, and I love all the like different ritual ways around holidays or birthdays that you serve people food. Hagrid takes it to too far of an extreme by being like Harry gets the food. Not Dudley, but we have a rule in our house, and this is a German tradition and a Jewish tradition, of creatures get fed in the order of the animals, the children, the adults. And then we were talking just the other day about how the order changes when there are guests, and it depends on who the guest is and what the occasion is. If it's guests for one of the kids' birthdays, then the kid whose birthday it is goes first, right? like there's something so beautifully symbolic about food and just like literally nutritious about food. And I love that Hagrid is like, well, Harry first. It's Harry's birthday. We say that Hagrid is the patron saint of transitions. He's like, you're transitioning from 10 to 11. You're transitioning from muggle to wizard. Here is a cake to acknowledge this. Here's some sausages. And then I just feel like he undermines it by turning to Dudley and being like, none for you.
2: I mean, I think the thing that you that I really liked in what you just said was the the thing about literal nutrition. Something about the way we celebrate marks an actual need we have. Harry literally is hungry. He could be not hungry with a banana, but the celebratory part is I'm making a cake. I'm cooking you sausages. I think there is a way we we can celebrate and mark really special occasions while also acknowledging that there's need around us and trying to answer that need in a responsible way. The fact that you're celebrating one thing doesn't mean that you have to ignore the need of others around you and. Dudley is not going to go hungry if he doesn't eat tonight, but he is hungry and he is 11 and there's plenty of cake and sausage. So it could be a more inclusive celebration, you know, but there is something about about these rituals, right? These rituals around food are rites of celebration. They are not just in excess of who we are and what we need. They both mark who we are and what we need, meet our need, but then also add something extra to signal a special transition, signal a special event signals something unique and important about who we are and who we're trying to become. And now it's time for our spiritual practice, which is Lectio Divina. Vanessa, do you have a line from the chapter that you'd like to share with us?
1: Yes, I picked this at random. Sorry, barked Hagrid, turning to stare at the Dursleys, who shrank back into the shadows.
2: Okay, Vanessa. So the first step of Lectio Divina is to talk about what's literally going on in the chapter. So when Hagrid says this, what is going on uh, in the chapter?
1: What's going on is that Hagrid has just said the word Hogwarts to Harry. And Harry's like, what's a Hogwarts? And... Hagrid is, like, offended. He's like, what's Hogwarts? And looks at the Dursleys like, you have been remiss in educating this child. It's like when I find out that children don't know about Gilmore Girls. I'm like, what's Gilmore Girls? And Harry goes, sorry, right, like, for not knowing. And Hagrid is like, you shouldn't be sorry. They should be sorry. And he gives the Dursleys such a withering stare that they try to make themselves invisible because they are physically scared of him.
2: In line with the theme conversation we were having, also, like, he has fed Harry. There's also some, like, trust-building or something that's happened in this, like, interaction where he has given him the cake, and he's cooked the sausages, and he's given them the tea or whatever, right? And so, like, I know, there's something about the, the passing on of these food items that there's both Harry's sort of apologetic tone where he says, ooh, sorry, I guess I don't know what Hogwarts is. But he also seems already to implicitly trust Hagrid, even though he's a giant and even though he's just blown the door off its hinges.
1: I trust anyone who has baked me a cake more than people who have not, which is why I just recently learned to trust Casper.
2: So next we look at the line allegorically, by which we mean we talk about what other stories this line invokes for us. So, Vanessa, how is this line operating allegorically for you? Sorry, barked Hagrid, turning to stare at the Dursleys, who shrank back into the shadows.
1: It reminds me of the beginning of Jane Eyre where she is reading. She's just like reading a book about birds. And she's just like imagining that she can go to all these places like the birds. She's like, Iceland, like the puffins. I want to do that. That's not one of the examples, but that's something I want to do. And she's just like, she's not doing anything, but she's hidden behind this curtain because she knows that just the sight of her is going to enact violence from her cousin and then her cousin starts calling for her. He's like, where is she? And she just like keeps trying to hide behind the curtain, which I can't believe that I've just compared Hagrid to John Reed and Jane to the Dursleys. But it happened, folks. What about you, Matt? What What other stories does it remind you of?
2: Vanessa, I don't know why I can't get this out of my head, but all I can see is the scene from the 1978 Superman with Christopher Reeve. Where he goes to the North Pole, and then the Palace of Solitude arises, and he meets his father Jor-El in the like. Jor-El is like an image who speaks to him from the the galactic past, and maybe it has something to do with like the stare of Marlon Brando <laughs> in the sky speaking to a young Superman, and how it like how it kind of recedes from sight. And there's something very stern and withering. Maybe it was the language you used, withering, that made me think of this. But it's not, I mean, it's not apology, but there is also something, I mean, maybe it just has to do with this idea of transition about Clark Kent realizing that he has always been something else. And now is the moment when it's being revealed to him who he is and what has been set for him. Maybe that's why this scene is so much, so much in my head. So, you know, it doesn't relate necessarily exactly to the idea of the transfer of of apology, which I thought you read so interestingly Or even The Withering Stare. But there is something about that moment of transition and this person who has known they've been different all their life being given permission to be different and starting to come to an idea of what that might mean for the future.
1: I love that. I'm still not going to watch that movie, though.
2: (laughs) It's a great movie. It's got a very stupid ending, which I forgive it for because it's a great movie. So the next step of Lectio Divina is we relate the line to something that's going on in our own life or what we think of in our own life. So I'll read it again, Vanessa, and then you can let me know what that is. Sorry, barked Hagrid, turning to stare at the Dursleys, who shrank back into the shadows.
1: It reminds me of this time that, like, my older brother and I were misbehaving in the back of the car, and my mom stopped the car and turned around and, like, gave us one of these stares and was like, I can't even deal with you anymore. Get out and walk home. And it was, you know, like, three blocks from home or whatever. So... We walked home and I feel like that stare was so painful that we didn't want to walk through the front door and like have to see her again. So we went around the house and there was like a cracked window that was like way too high up for us at like I don't know how old we were. Like no more than 8 and 10 respectively. We were like we don't want to see mom stare again. So we're going to crawl through this 8 foot high window and like in danger really injuring ourselves just in order to avoid that face. I am really seeing myself as a Dursley in all of this. I'm like, yeah, a withering stare is horrible. I will climb through a window to not have to deal with it. What about you? What does it remind you of in your life?
2: I mean, I have another withering stare story. The one that just stuck out to me as soon as you used the phrase withering stare was from my eighth grade history class. I was a good student and I obeyed all the rules and all that stuff. And one day towards the spring of eighth grade history, like things were getting a little rambunctious before class started. And usually I did not involve myself in that kind of nonsense. But this day I was a slightly involved in that kind of nonsense. And I remember the teacher just kind of, who was a guy who liked me and who I liked a lot, just kind of looked at me and just said my name. He just said, he just looked at me with a little bit of a, like slightly askance and said, Matt. And I was just like, that was it. I was done. And it was something about just sort of like knowing he had me dead to rights. I knew I was doing something I shouldn't have been doing. And part of what made it work so well is like, I suddenly got worried that maybe, maybe he thought something different of me than like this great relationship we had built over the year. Like, maybe he thought I was a bad kid and not a good kid and I had to be a good kid. Right. And that he could communicate that with a stare, with just a glance. Actually, not even a stare, with just a glance. That was effective teaching.
1: You were such a goody goody that one look, you were like, oh my God. <laughs> I used to get kicked out of class all the time for talking. Who does this surprise?
2: Oh, my gosh. If that had happened to me, I might not have made it home. I was I was very worried about my behavior in school.
1: Oh, my God. All you have to do is get really comfortable with the feeling of righteous indignation. And then you're fine with it.
2: I had no righteous indignation. I was like, you're probably right. Yeah, I I was totally wrong. You were right. I apologize.
1: Oh, my God. I have it in abundance.
2: So, Vanessa, the last step of Lectio Divina is to... Reflect upon what this line from the text calls us to in our own lives. Sorry, barked Hagrid, turning to stare at the Dursleys who shrank back into the shadows. I'm still really, I mean, I know we've been talking about withering Stairs for a few minutes, but I'm still really taken by your observance, Vanessa, that that through this stare, culpability is transferred. That Harry believes it's his fault for not knowing about Hogwarts, and Hagrid, just through the way he looks at the the Dursleys, makes them know and makes Harry know and everybody else who's observing the scene know that actually it's the Dursleys' fault. It just makes me think about blame and culpability. I I think in our world, in our politics, in our lives, we tend to oversimplify fault. I mean, it's related to what you were saying before about, you know, your neighbor who might be diagnosed with cancer and then we want to know if she smoked. I think we oversimplify fault because if we know who to blame, we feel like we can protect everyone better. I just think I as an individual, we as a community, maybe we as a culture need to really endeavor to get into more complicated conversations about what fault is and where it lies and how it plays out in our lives.
1: Yeah, I'm just going to be inspired by what you said. I was recently invited to speak on a panel and I said yes. And then somebody pointed out to me that she has started doing this thing that I think a lot of people now do of asking if there's a person of color on the panel before saying yes to being on the panel. And I, I've i been really going back and forth as to whether or not I should write to this person and be like, I won't be on your panel, right? Like it feels different to do it after the fact, but I think from your invitation I am culpable. Like every time I'm on a panel of all white people, like even if I didn't like form the panel, that's on me. I know people of color who can speak about these topics just as well, if not better than I can. And so I am going to write to this woman and be like, hey, by the way, I have a policy that I don't sit on panels that are all white. So you have inspired me to actually do that. Thank you so much for leading that practice, Matt. Thank you, Vanessa. Redfin, it's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands.
1: We will now take a moment to honor some of the members of our community who are lost due to COVID. Carl Lindgren, who was 92, a grandfather, and an Uno aficionado. Herb Laws, who was 47. George Sapnet, who is 68, a high school caretaker, father, and veteran. Lolly Jones Gray, who was 73 a painter, mother, grandmother, and favorite aunt. Janice, who's 78, a grandmother, mother, and fiercely independent. Dave Collett, who is 56, a scout leader and father to many. May their memories be a blessing. This week's voicemail is from Deedee.
0: Hello, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. I'm Deedee. I'm 15 years old, and my pronouns are they, she. Today, I wanted to offer a blessing of gratitude for Hermione. Um, I've been going through a bit of an identity crisis recently, which I'm guessing is pretty normal for kids my age, especially in these days of COVID and self-isolation where you don't have much of a choice but to sit with yourself. As I look back on my past self, I see that I was a lot like Hermione, from the buck teeth to the bossiness to the deep love for school. And I always knew that I related to her, but only now do I see how close I was to her. And she really helped me define who I was for a long time. And she showed me that I was not alone in who I was, and that I could have been a hero. And so as I let go of the part of me that was so similar to Hermione, I wanted to thank her for all she's done and offer this blessing of gratitude because I know that she really helped me with my identity and I'm sure she helped a lot of other people out there too. So this is a blessing of gratitude for Hermione and a general blessing for anyone out there who is having to let go of parts of their old selves. Um, thanks for all the work you do. Bye.
1: Dee, thank you so much for that really wonderful blessing of Hermione. Hermione deserves all the blessings. Matt, who are you going to be blessing this week?
2: Uh, This week, I would like to bless Dudley for very simple reasons. He's 11 years old, and 11-year-olds shouldn't be called pigs. They shouldn't be turned into pigs, and they shouldn't be hurt. We love Hagrid, but Hagrid did wrong here. So I want to send a blessing to anyone who is having wrong done to them and tell them that they don't deserve it.
1: I am gonna bless Hagrid, who we love and is so wonderful, and is has been given this like really big task by Dumbledore, and it is a much more daunting task than he maybe be thought because of the Dursleys. But I'm blessing him for doing wrong, and I think that like good people do wrong, and I hope that he learns from this, and I I think he does. I don't think that Hagrid in five years would do this. I really don't. I think that. We see him grow and change as, you know, adults grow and change just as much as kids. And so just as someone who loves Hagrid, I want to call out this moment that he really messes up and say, I know that he does better and just bless him because we are not our worst moments.
2: I hope. Have you spoken on the show before about the fact that the word blessed means wounded, means bloodied? No. He's a wounded person just like everybody else. And that's what it means to be blessed.
1: Oh, I love that.
2: Etymology, man. It's where it's at.
1: (laughs) Gonna get you a t-shirt. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can find listeners who are discussing the episodes in the Facebook common room. You can join our local groups and come and join the community of people supporting us on Patreon, and you can leave us a review on iTunes. Compliment Matt in the iTunes reviews and upset Casper. Send us a voicemail with a blessing for a character. Please, we love getting them. Next week, we'll be joined by Naomi Westwater, and we'll do an owl post.
2: We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our producer this week is Juliana Bradley. Music from Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are distributed by Acast. Special thanks this week to Didi, who sent us such a wonderful voicemail. To Molly Baxter, to Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Megan Kelly, Casper Terkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and all the people who send in names of their loved ones lost to COVID.
1: Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. My cakes then get rated. And get sometimes told that they are B minus. Sometimes I've brought the frosting and the cake separately and been told to go re-whip the frosting with a little milk in it, and been sent to the KitchenAid.
2: That wasn't by me, was it? Yes, I would never say something like that. I don't think. Mm. Mm. <laughs>